Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the author of On the Edge of Freedom, David Smith. David G. Smith, author of On the Edge of Freedom, The Fugitive Slave Issue in South Central Pennsylvania, 1820 to 1870. If you visited South Central Pennsylvania during this time frame, what would it have looked like? Well, it was an interesting region of the state. It was separated by the Susquehanna River from Philadelphia and the more populous eastern part of the state. So as a result, they bridged the Susquehanna in about 1814. They put a $250,000 bridge over it. Uh, but as a result, much of South Central Pennsylvania was more tied to the South, to Maryland and Virginia, than it was to the rest of Eastern Pennsylvania. And it was flat, it was rolling farmland like it is today. Uh, but a, a lot of the communities and the people had ties and relatives and kin in Maryland or Virginia. You say in the book it's kind of like the Alsace-Lorraine of, uh, of Pennsylvania or of the Exactly. US. It's, it's, uh, the book is really about South Central Pennsylvania as a border region. It's, I call it a border region of a border state because Pennsylvania was on the Mason-Dixon line and the three South Central Pennsylvania counties were right on, uh, two of them were right on the Mason-Dixon line. And so it was the, it, it had all the characteristics of a border region of, in terms of those connections across the border and, and a lot of desire for pragmatism and for maybe let's not take an extreme stand that will anger our southern neighbors. Now, for uh, which counties are you talking about? Exactly. I'm talking about Franklin County, Adams County, and Cumberland County. Uh, Cumberland County isn't actually on the border, but it has many of the same characteristics as Franklin and Adams. And because another distinguished historian has recently done a lot of work on Franklin, I concentrated most of my work in Adams County around Gettysburg, but I also talk about things that happen in Franklin and Cumberland. So for people who might not be familiar with the geography, where are those counties located? Those are pretty much in the middle of the <coughs> southern part of Pennsylvania. They're right on the Maryland border and they're uh, you know not as far west as Pittsburgh or as far as east, east as Philadelphia. They're pretty much in the middle and, and Cumberland County actually touches the Susquehanna River and it's across from Harrisburg. Now at the time of this, the pre-Civil War years, what was the population makeup? Uh, there were a couple, there were some interesting uh, population groups uh, in the area. There were a lot of Germans. Uh, in some of the counties, they were up to 50% of the population. It's hard to really call them a minority. There were also a number of Scots-Irish who had moved into the area. And there was a, a, a large, not a large, but a, a significant African-American population. Amish or Mennonites? Uh, yes, there were some, and uh, they become important to this story. There were, there were some Amish Mennonite type groups who didn't want to take oaths, preferred not to uh, serve in the militia. There were also a lot of Quakers, and some of them had similar views. Well, how did they break down politically? I mean, did like the Germans well, join one party and Scots-Irish join another Yes, party? without, without uh, 
denying the uh, ability of an individual to choose. A lot of the Germans tended to be the real core strength of the Democratic Party in Pennsylvania, and they were in this area. A lot of them were recent immigrants, and they felt like the Democratic Party was a little more egalitarian and a little more open to people who'd newly come to the country. And a lot of the uh, Scots-Irish and, uh, the, the, and some of the Quakers tended to be originally Whigs, and then when the Whig Party disappeared, some of them became Republicans. What did it mean at the time to be a Democrat? Well, the Democratic Party, uh, in the early part of the antebellum period, you can kind of think about Thomas Jefferson as maybe a figurehead of what the Democratic Party was like. And it was about sort of equal opportunity, opportunity for all. It was a mass political party. And that's one of the reasons why it survived throughout this period while the Federalists go away and later the Whigs go away. The Democratic Party had a broad appeal to uh, working men and to businessmen. And they were also based on the idea uh, that historically the strength of the Democratic Party in the United States was in the South, where Jefferson was from. So the Democratic Party in Pennsylvania tended to take positions that wouldn't offend the South. So they weren't typically anti-slavery. Some Democrats were, but as a party they weren't. And they, they tried to carry Pennsylvania in the presidential elections, and if they did, Pennsylvania combined with the South was usually enough to have a new president elected who was a Democrat. And for a period of time here, the opposition party was the Whig Party? Yes, the opposition party was the Whig Party. The Whig Party was a party that believed in internal improvements, making some investments to help the country, like putting that bridge over the Susquehanna or improving a road. They also believed in a strong bank, which the Democrats opposed the bank because they felt it would uh, collect money power in too small a number of hands. And so the Whig Party was the main opposition party until the 1850s when the Whig Party collapses and then later the Republicans rise. You mentioned that there was a number of uh, free African-Americans in these counties at the time. How did that population come to be there? Well, that's a great question. And they came to be here because there was slavery in Pennsylvania in the 1600s and 1700s. And most of it was concentrated in the southern part of the state. There was a lot that was a populated part of the state. And there was a lot of grain growing and other stuff where you could use some slave labor to help you out. Now what happened is in 1780, Pennsylvania starts a long and somewhat arduous process of gradual emancipation. And there's a lot of Quaker influence near Philadelphia, and they managed to speed up the process a little. So about, by about 1810, most of the slavery is gone from the eastern counties of the state. But in South Central Pennsylvania, there's still slavery here. And they get manumitted uh, over a greater time. By about 1830, 1840, most of the slaves in South Central Pennsylvania are free. And they form the core of the free African-American population here, along with slaves who were manumitted in Maryland or Virginia. Those states had laws that those slaves had to be carried out of the state if they were freed. And so they would be carried to Southern Pennsylvania. And then, of course, you get some fugitive slaves who escape. And they tend to want to stay in South Central Pennsylvania because then they'll be close to their kin and their friends and their relatives. And so that kind of makes up the diverse basis of the African-American population here. What does that word manumitted mean? I'm sorry. Manumitted would be when a slave owner would voluntarily free his slaves. Um, and during around the 1780s, 1790s, there was a big push for slave owners in Maryland and Virginia to do that and extends until the 1800s. But eventually the struggle between sort of uh, opposition to slavery and slavery becomes so great that manumission start to fall off. 
Now, uh, you mentioned in here that, uh, and you just said that, that if, if a slave owner freed the slaves, they had to leave the state? Yes, most southern states like Virginia, which as you know was the largest southern uh, slaveholding state during much of this period, most southern states didn't want large free black populations. They were afraid it would entice their slaves to run away. That was their main worry. And so if you freed your slaves, they didn't want you to increase the free black population in Virginia, so they passed a law and said you have to get them out of the state. You also said instead of emancipating their slaves, some southern slave owners took them to southern Pennsylvania and sold them as indentured servants until age 21. This was illegal. Slaves coming into the state were to be freed immediately, but in some areas the practice may have continued until 1845. Right. What happened was Pennsylvania's emancipation law was kind of complicated. In 1780, in part because of the American Revolution and because of the strong Quaker influence in the state, they decided to pass a law to free Pennsylvania slaves. However, they didn't just say all the slaves are free. They said slaves are free when they reach age 28. And if they have children, those children are not free until age 28, which is almost a recipe for perpetual slavery. Uh, and so what ended up happening was people started realizing that there was sort of work value to the time of a slave up until he was age 28. So if you, you bought or acquired or indentured uh, a slave, let's say at age 17, then you were going to control him for 11 years. So that time was worth money. So southern slave owners who didn't necessarily want to just manumit their slaves with no return might bring them to Pennsylvania and try to get uh, $100 or something for the remaining time left on the slave's term of ser service. Actually, under the emancipation law, if a slave came from out of state and was to be freed, he was supposed to be freed immediately. But that wasn't always followed. So if a, a slave was in Maryland or Virginia and freed and came to Pennsylvania, how would they get a job? Well, they would usually network with the, uh, with the free black population in Pennsylvania. There was a sizable one along the southern tier. Uh, they would often get uh, usually the lowest end of the ladder jobs, like working in a tannery or working in a hotel or doing laundry or working in an iron furnace, anything that was hot, sweaty, and dirty. Those were the sort of jobs they would usually get. Now, one of the things that happens a little later in the period is that when we get a large wave of immigration coming over from Europe, some of those immigrants uh, end up competing with some of the African Americans for jobs like domestic service, which is another reason why immigrants tended to go to the Democratic Party and uh, weren't always on the friendliest terms with African Americans. I, I will say, though, also is that in some communities didn't want them. And I've seen the newspapers in York and in Chambersburg that said, large party of African American arrives town in consternation, and they would try to ship them out or persuade them to move elsewhere. Was the African American population at all politically involved? Interestingly enough, yes, we see some evidence of political involvement among the African American population here. Uh, there's, because these counties are rural counties, there's not a whole lot of evidence like you would see in uh, an urban area. But we know, for instance, in 1847, when one of the fugitive slave laws was being debated in the Pennsylvania legislature, uh, Gettysburg's African Americans got together and 110 of them signed a petition and sent it to the Pennsylvania legislature and said they were all the African Americans of Gettysburg and they urged them to pass this fugitive slave law. We have no other petition in the state archives from any African Americans except uh, a few on other issues from, 
from Philadelphia and one or two from Pittsburgh in the whole antebellum period. So this is unusual that Gettysburg's African Americans organized and did that. What does antebellum mean? I'm sorry, antebellum means before the Civil War. What in these years that you cover in your book, what um, what were the fugitive slave laws? The uh, the fugitive slave law in uh, in 1793. The, well, let me back up just a little and say that part of what my book was about was I wanted to look at the fugitive slave law along the border because first of all, you get a lot of fugitives there. Secondly, pretty much every fugitive east of the Allegheny Mountains, if they're going to flee on land, and that's most of the fugitives, some flee on boats, if they're going to flee on land, they have to go through Pennsylvania. And Southerners know this, and Northerners know this. And so, and the other thing is that with these border areas being close to the South, some of the members of the community did not want to always take a, a, a big stand on immediate abolition, freeing slaves immediately, or a big stand on doing something real controversial and public. Quakers weren't always into that. And so they needed to find another way they could oppose slavery, and the fugitive slave issue sort of became uh, that way. Now, in the U.S. Constitution, it says that slave owners have a right to recover their, their fugitives. But this wasn't put into law until 1793, and interestingly enough, it was a Pennsylvania case that forced it to be turned into a law. So that, that's in the, the U.S. Constitution? Yeah, it's in the U.S. Constitution. There's, 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 there's a line that basically says if you're a fugitive from justice and you flee to another state, you have to be returned. And then right after it, it says if you're a fugitive from labor, they don't call it a slave, but if they say if you're a fugitive from labor and you go to another state, then you have to be returned as well. This was never codified, though, until a couple of people from Virginia came up and seized a man in Pennsylvania and carried him south. And Pennsylvania asked Virginia to return him and said it was a kidnapping case. And Virginia said, no, it's a fugitive slave. And from that, we got what we call the 1793 Fugitive Slave Law. And the 1793 Fugitive Slave Law basically said that uh, uh, Southerners could go make a declaration in front of a judge in their area and they could come up and they could seize a fugitive slave. How easy was it at the time to identify somebody correctly? Um, well, that's an issue. Uh, and if you read some of these slave warrants and these warrants of removal like I have, the descriptions are very general. They say Frank is stout, he's about 5'4", and that's pretty much the whole, he's dark maybe, that'll be the whole description. So how do you know whether you're seizing the right person? And that's why some of the Pennsylvania legal experts and some of the abolitionists ended up um, passing a new law in 1821 and then 26, making, forcing them to also go before a judge in, in uh, Pennsylvania and make a declaration before the fugitive could be carried south. How was Pennsylvania cooperating with these laws? Pennsylvania would say that it cooperated with the laws well, but states like Kentucky and Maryland and Virginia were always complaining that Pennsylvania was, was putting up barriers to the return of fugitive slaves. Now you mentioned this, the, um, the 1847 personal liberty law. Mm -hmm. uh, you're right about that quite a bit. Can you describe what that was? Yes. So what happened was you had this 1826 law that the southern states didn't like. And, uh, and they protested, and, and there was another case in southern Pennsylvania in York County called Prigg versus Pennsylvania. And in Prigg versus Pennsylvania, the Supreme Court declared the 1826 law Ill, uh, unconstitutional. And so as a result, Pennsylvania needed a new law. And in 1845, 
there was a very famous case in the area near Gettysburg where an African-American woman named Kitty Payne was seized and carried south. And the Quakers, Brian, they followed her to Maryland and then they followed her into Virginia. And they found out where she was being held and they eventually got her out after several months of legal action. And then there was a trial of a man who kidnapped her in Adams County. And that trial got a lot of publicity. The kidnapper, Thomas Finnegan, was convicted and after that, there was a late push by the Quakers in the Pennsylvania legislature to pass a law that would basically make it possible for Pennsylvania not to cooperate at all with the rendition of fugitive slaves, not to let their jails be used, not to let their constables be used, not to let their judges be used. And they could do this because in the Prigg versus Pennsylvania decision, the Supreme Court had said, we will allow states to say this is only a federal manner, matter and we're not going to be involved. Was there any thinking in Pennsylvania that they just didn't care if free blacks got kidnapped and taken to Virginia, or was it a, a principled stand? Well, I argue that a, a lot of people in Pennsylvania didn't really care. Um, and, and that's not to condemn them. It's sort of understandable. It wasn't really in their sphere. They might not know any free blacks, and for them it wasn't a big issue if a free black was, was reclaimed as a fugitive. Now, obviously, a minority of people, the anti-slavery people and the people who cared about fugitive slaves, people who worked the Underground Railroad, they cared very much. What I argue in the book is that over time, partly by emphasizing these kidnapping cases, uh, abolitionists tried to reframe the debate away from fugitive slaves, who there was a legal right to recover a fugitive in the law, to kidnapping of free people who were then being carried south and enslaved. You mentioned the Underground Railroad. How much uh, of the lore of the Underground Railroad is, is made up and what was the reality of it? That's a very interesting question and one that historians have been debating for about 100 years. Uh, and it's difficult sometimes for an academic historian to get a grip on it because it's an underground institution. There aren't a whole lot of sources. I will say that in the 60s, a lot of revisionist historians were basically saying there weren't that many fugitive slaves, Quakers weren't that important, African Americans freed on, fleed on their own, and that kind of thing. Uh, what I found in my research is at least in South Central Pennsylvania, that's not really true because all fugitives fleeing by land had to come through Pennsylvania and a lot of them came through South Central Pennsylvania. There were lots of different routes, there were lots of people helping. Yes, generally it was the African Americans, but sometimes it was, uh, you know, caring white families who would help and who would provide them help uh, on their way. How generally was it known who the, the white families were who were participating in this? Well, unfortunately, and Frederick Douglass actually complained about this in terms of upstate New York one time, unfortunately it was fairly well known. People knew who the Quakers were and people tended to know who the Quakers who felt or the other people in town who felt the worst against slavery were. What worked in South Central Pennsylvania is that the anti-slavery people, two things, they tend to live in networks. They tended to be surrounded by families who thought like them, so even if those families weren't helping fugitives, they wouldn't turn you in if you were helping one. They also tended to control the banks, so if you didn't like that they were helping fugitive slaves, you might not be able to get them a loan. And they also tended to control the mills, so maybe you wouldn't get your grain ground either. How big an issue was this at the time? Was it something that dominated people's thoughts, or were, could, could people go about their lives perfectly comfortably without ever thinking about this? Well, it, it, it ebbed and flowed. Certainly when there was a big case or when an anti-slavery lecturer came to Gettysburg like he did in 1837, uh, there were a lot of people thinking about it and talking about it. But as most fugitives were trying not to be detected and caught, a lot of them went through the area with no sort of bother whatsoever. 
But what made it an issue was when the southern states would come, as they did occasionally to the Pennsylvania legislature, and say, you are sort of violating the terms of the compact. You're not returning our fugitives. Then it would become a uh, uh, political issue. And I argue certainly after the 1850 Fugitive Slave Law, which we haven't talked about yet, after that law, then it became very politicized. What was the Fugitive Slave Law of okay. 1850 that was different? Remember, we talked about Prigg versus Pennsylvania in 1842, and then in 1847, Pennsylvania passes a personal liberty law that's very strict and says we won't help remand fugitives, basically. Massachusetts had passed a similar law. A lot of states had passed similar laws. The Southerners are very upset in 1850. There are other issues going on with territory from Mexico. And it looks like there's going to be a big split and maybe even a, a rift in the nation in 1850. So Henry Clay and other people step in, Daniel Webster, and they develop the Compromise of 1850. And one part of the Compromise of 1850 to mollify the Southerners is a much more stringent fugitive slave law. And what this law basically says is that it says that northern uh, it appoints federal fugitive slave commissioners. So now the people who rule on fugitive slave cases will not be a local judge who could be swayed by local opinion, but they're supposed to be federal officers, and they're supposed to accept as evidence whatever the southern courts come up with and send up there, and they're supposed to uh, not grant habeas corpus rights or anything like that to fugitives. Uh, and finally, if and this was one of the most controversial provisions, if they uh, rule for the fugitive to be remanded, they get paid $10. But if they rule for him to be freed, they get paid $5. And so uh, all of this makes the fugitive slave more likely to be sent south. Now, people have argued that probably that was put in the law because there's a little more paperwork you have to fill out if the fugitive is going to be carried south. But it, it looked like essentially blood money. And so as soon as this law is passed, there starts to be sharp division between people in the north who, who don't want to help fugitive, who don't want fugitives to be captured and people in the south who do. I should say that, that one of the northern mindsets in this period was that the Mason-Dixon line was a divider and they had no problem if a slave escaped in South Carolina and he was recaptured in Virginia. But if he crossed the line and got into free soil, then they didn't want fugitive slavery conditions to happen from the free north. Now, in the area covered in your book, which is uh, Adams, Franklin, and Cumberland counties, right. uh, how did they react to the 1850s fugitive slave law? Did they sort of say, well, you know, that's federal law, we have to abide by it, or did they kind of take umbrage? They took umbrage. Uh, they definitely took umbrage. And they're definitely, uh, they were all throughout southern Pennsylvania, Lancaster County, and in my area, so there were huge sort of rallies. African Americans came out. Some of them were radicalized, and others decided they had to leave the area. But there were a lot of there were a lot of uh, protests when it first came out. But then, after about a uh, a year, the issue started to die down. It looked like it wasn't going to gain so much traction right in my area. Partly again because my area is right on the border. Don't want to create that 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 rift with the people of the South living right to below you, and so. After a while, it started to die down, and it looked like it would die down, and then the Christiana riot happened in 1851. And uh, what happened there was four fugitives had fled from Baltimore County, and they went to Lancaster County, and they stayed with a, an African-American, also a fugitive, named William Parker. And the, the slave owner from Baltimore County, named Edward Gorsuch, went up there and tried to forcibly recover these slaves from the house, and he ended up being killed. There was gunfire. His body actually ended up being sort of mutilated by, by 
uh, some of the slaves armed with knives and scythes after he was already dead. And it became a huge issue. It also occurred in the middle of a Pennsylvania governor's race. And when Christiana occurred and that instance of resistance by African Americans to being retaken occurred, um, then that kind of brings the fugitive slave issue back up into the fore. I argue that uh, in my area, the fugitive slave issue kind of goes through some cycles. And uh, Christiana brought it back up with a vengeance. And then there was a big trial in southern Pennsylvania of the people who were believed to have helped uh, the Christiana rioters. And uh, the Democrats used Christiana as a way to peel the conservative Whigs away from the anti-slavery Whigs. And they, they won the uh, 1851 Pennsylvania gubernatorial election as a result. I want to ask you about a character in, in your book who shows up periodically. That's Governor William Johnston. Okay. Because he, he lost in 1851, was that it? Yes, he did. But uh, can you talk about his, his involvement, what positions he took? Yes, William Johnson is an interesting person. He was a speaker of the uh, House, uh, and he was, um, uh, what happened was the Democrats actually won the election in uh, 1847, and yet their candidate uh, died, or I think he got sick and had to leave office very quickly. Pennsylvania had a kind of unusual secession plan at, the, at that time. There was no lieutenant governor, and so the Speaker of the, of the Senate, or the Speaker, I think the Speaker of the Senate, I think that's what Johnson was, the Speaker of the Senate would become governor. Well, guess what? Uh, Morris Longstreth was a Democrat, but William Johnson was a Whig. And he wasn't just any Whig, he ends up turning out to be sort of a, a pro-free soil Whig. He doesn't want slavery to expand. He makes some statements in favor of uh, fugitive slaves. He's sort of a, for his time, he's kind of an anti-slavery governor. Now, the, the Democrats had hated him for a variety of reasons. One is they called him the accidental governor because they said he never, he never should have uh, uh, you know, gotten into the governorship, except that the Democrat got sick. Oh, by the way, I believe now that that was 1846. Then in 1847, they actually have an election, and Johnson wins by 300 votes, which is the narrowest Pennsylvania gubernatorial election ever. And it's sort of like Florida in 2000 all over again, but maybe even tighter. And as a result, so the Democrats say, well, he never would have gotten those 300 votes if he hadn't been governor. So the, the Democrats hate him, and they hate him for his anti-slavery positions, and they see him as a target. And uh, final thing about William Johnson is he wasn't a very good speaker. And he came to Gettysburg late in the campaign in 1851, and the Democratic paper said, oh, there were no crowds, there were no banners, there was no enthusiasm, there was no nothing, which was a way at, at pointing fun at the fact that Johnson had a little bit of support from the nativist party, who was called the know-nothings. But he just wasn't that dynamic. There was a big economic failure also going on in 1851. He didn't have a very good economic plan. Uh, but he was an interesting figure because if you read his speeches, his state of the state speeches as governor, um, he says some fairly militant anti-slavery things for the governor of a border state in, in 1850. Was he out of step with the rest of Pennsylvania at the time, or was, or was there a strong He, he was a little out of step, I think. He was in step with about half of the Whig Party, but he was out of step with about the other half, which is why uh, the Democrats, once Christiana happened, they used that event to kind of split the Whig Party. He was, he, he was militant enough that he got support from people like Thaddeus Stevens and from anti-slavery. John Greenleaf Whittier wrote a poem in his honor. The anti-slavery community around the country really liked him, but yes, in Pennsylvania, he may have been just a little ahead of his time. 
want to ask you about a term you just used, the know-nothings, and you also use a phrase, the loco-focos, in your okay. book. Loco-foco is just sort of a general phrase for the Democratic Party. Um, and uh, I've forgotten its derivation. It probably comes from something that happened in the 1830s in, in New York State. That's where a lot of these political nicknames come from. The know-nothings were a little different situation. What happens in the 1850s is the Whig Party, it just wasn't Johnson and, and Christiana. It was nationally. The Whig Party is losing a lot of steam, and people see it's going to split apart, and uh, eventually it dies. And so these new parties start to spring up. And one of them was called the American Party, because just like now, people like to put American on their names and appear loyal. But th it was a group of what are considered nativists. And they were people who, who basically believed in America for the Americans, the Anglo people who are already here, we should be the Americans. And immigrants, they should have much longer periods of time to vote. And let's not teach any foreign languages in our, in our public schools. And, or, or let's mandate the, the Protestant Bible in the public schools so the Catholics won't come. Very sort of uh, prejudiced and, and bigoted positions. But they gained a lot of support briefly in Pennsylvania and across the North because there was no real oppor uh, opposition to the Democrats with the Whigs sort of collapsing. And, and with, a, with a policy against immigrants, you can imagine how the, the immigrants who were in the Democratic Party uh, felt about them. And so things were, were very d divided. And I argue in the book that that kind of makes the fugitive slave issue tank for a few years in my region because the newspaper that had been running a lot of anti-slavery stuff all of a sudden started running a lot of pro-nativist stuff and, and uh, know-nothing kind of stuff. There was also an anti-Masonic party. Yes, that was earlier, and that's actually very important to this story, because the anti-Masonic party uh, arose from an incident that occurred uh, where uh, the, the Freemasons were a very secretive group, and a lot of people felt like they had too much control. They were kind of a secret cabal. And a newspaper editor had said, I'm going to write an expose of the Freemasons. He had been a Freemason himself. And, and he went out with some other Freemasons, and he kind of disappeared. And it's always been presumed that he was murdered because he was going to reveal the secrets of Freemasonry. Well, politicians grabbed this, and they seized on it, and they created the, the Anti-Masonic Party, which was really, uh, it, was a, it was mainly rurally based, and it was against things like uh, oath-taking, secret ceremonies, um, uh, and, and all that kind of thing. And, and in, in Gettysburg, Thaddeus Stevens was the leader of the Anti-Masonic Party. Uh, and then you had the Federalist Party, similar to what was going on in the 1850s. The Federalist Party was starting to die as a result of their almost trying to secede New England out of the War of 1812. At the end of the War of 1812, the Hartford Convention, they almost voted to take New England out of the Union, and they never recovered from that. So the Federalist Party is on the decline, so Thaddeus Stephen takes over the Anti-Masonic Party. Uh, Pennsylvania elected an Anti-Masonic governor once upon a time. Th they did. They did. Jacob Rittner, who was German by background. And uh, some people felt like Thaddeus Stevens, who was practicing in Gettysburg at this time. He didn't move to Lancaster until 1840. He was in Gettysburg. Some felt he was the power behind the throne, behind Jacob Rittner, because Rittner came out with some anti-slavery statements in 1836, which were, again, pretty bold. He talked about Pennsylvania not bowing its knee to slavery. And this was in the context, again, of these other states coming and complaining that Pennsylvania wasn't remanding its fugitives. You, uh, you talk about the newspapers that were in the area at the time, the Republican Compiler, which you say is a Democratic paper. Yes. 
the Adams Sentinel and the Gettysburg Star and Republican Banner. Yes. What was it like to read the newspapers from back then? Well, those newspapers back then, that's a great question. They were intended to be, they were called broadsheets, so they were about that large. And they tended to be either four pages or six pages or eight pages. And they would come out about once a week, and the type would be pretty, pretty small. And the front page would generally be jokes and miscellany, maybe something about flowers or a recipe. And then inside you would get the local news, and then you'd get some national news, and then you'd get a page and a half of advertisements, just like today. And uh, those newspapers, uh, it's interesting because scholars of the antebellum period have argued that newspapers helped whip up the antebellum crisis and turn it into the Civil War. Newspapers uh, like the Herald Tribune in New York City that Horace Greeley edited, and there's some truth to that. But again, in my area, uh, a lot of these newspapers were trying not to whip up problems, because if the South ever seceded, parts of South Central Pennsylvania are just three or four miles away from Virginia, if you look on a map. And so as a result, they were trying to tamp down things. But uh, the, the editors of these newspapers would often be shooting at each other in the pages and you know, trying to find an issue or stir up something that would, would get them votes at the next election. Because these newspapers were really partisan papers, and they were designed to turn out the vote uh, at the next election. And if your side won and you were lucky, you'd get some of the government printing contracts from Harrisburg, and that would help you pay your bills. So it's clear when you read these papers what side they are on politically? They don't yes, try to be objective? Yes, it's very clear. They're, they're not particularly objective. In fact, they usually put it right in the masthead what they are. Uh, they're a tiny bit confusing because everybody liked to be a Republican back then, and Jefferson's party was called the Democratic Republicans. But um, no, they were pretty clear about their political leanings. And in fact, once a year, usually when they started what they called a new issue, they would put in a few paragraphs and state their paper's philosophy and that kind of thing. So it's a little bit like Fox and MSNBC today. Exactly. That's a very good comparison. You, you list this one paper, the Gettysburg Star and Republican Banner, as uh, their perspective as being conscience Whig party. What yes. is a, what's a conscience Whig? That's in the 1850s, and th that's sort of my way of um, describing uh, uh, anti-slavery. Uh, they were also usually for things like temperance, but primarily an anti-slavery Whig paper would be what was called like a, a conscience Whig newspaper. And um, the, the, uh, the star and Republican banner in the 1830s was essentially Thaddeus Stevens' personal newspaper. And he owned it. He owned the controlling interest. So very little got into the pages, we think, that he didn't approve of. Uh, he goes through a, bank, a near bankruptcy in about 1850. So he doesn't really own as much of the paper, but he's still a big influence on it in the 1850s. Where'd you go to find out other information for this book? I, uh, I enjoyed doing the research for this book very much, and I went to a number of places. I went to the local historical societies. I went to the Adams County Historical Society, the Cumberland County Historical Society, spent a lot of time there. I went to the Franklin County Historical Society, which is called the Kidach Tinney uh, Historical Society in Chambersburg. I also, because I wanted to get the full story, I went to some historical societies in Frederick County, Maryland, and Carroll County, Maryland, and Baltimore County, Maryland. Uh, I went up to look at some anti-slavery abolitionist newspapers in uh, the Boston Public Library. Um, I also traveled, when I was doing my research on the Civil War part, I traveled to the Virginia Historical Society, to Duke University, to North Carolina, and even to Tufts University. Um, I wanted to catch a, cast a broad net and get experience with a lot of different sources. That was a lot of fun. Do you have many eureka moments? 
Yes, you do. You have eureka moments when you do these kind of, uh, uh, this kind of research. Certainly finding an 1847 um, petition from African Americans in the Pennsylvania State Archives from Gettysburg, that was a eureka moment. Uh, when I did my research on uh, the capture of African Americans in Pennsylvania during the Civil War, I was able to find some orders in, on this old roll of microfilm in the National Archives that I don't think anyone has looked at. I was able to find orders there. I was also, uh, I went, not even the microfilm, I went into the hard copy Confederate archives in the National Archives, some of which had been destroyed at the fall of Richmond, and I found a bound volume about prisons, and the last 20 pages had been cut out with a knife, and the last page before the one that had been cut out had the list of African-American prisoners I was looking for on it, and uh, with where they were sent, and the date of the order, and had that person been able to destroy any more of that book, I wouldn't have found it. Well, in this part of Pennsylvania you're talking about, was there much of an abolitionist movement? There was. Uh, I don't want to, uh, because my book focuses on the fugitive slave issue, I don't want to sell the uh, abolition sentiments short. Most of the people who felt strongly about a few, the fugitive slave issue in my area also were staunch sort of immediate abolitionists. They believed that slaves should be freed immediately, not gradually. That was a very controversial position in the 1830s and 40s, and many of the people in this area were like that. But uh, there was a different group of people that believed in freeing the slaves but wanted to work uh, behind the scenes more, not be so confrontational, uh, and so as a result, some of the uh, anti-slavery lecturers who came through didn't didn't like the uh, reception in this area. Do you have any sense for the number of runaway slaves that were passing through these counties? That was it. A, was it every now and then somebody, or was it a constant flood? It was. Well, that's a very interesting question to ask uh, because. Again, the fugitives are trying not to be detected. And so it's a very difficult question to get a handle on. For many, many years, sort of the, the going number that was, was told about in the literature was about 50,000 fugitive slaves nationally from, say, 1820 to 1830 up until the Civil War. Then what happened is when, the, when historians started to look in the census, they, they, they looked at the 1850 census where you had to register your slaves in the South and the 1860 census and in both those censuses there was a category that said do you have any fugitives and they added those up and they came out to about 1100 both years and 1100 both years actually if that just represents one year that's that's 10,000 a decade so that's about right but, but what these historians ended up saying was the fugitive slave problem was vastly overblown there weren't that many fugitives well, they kind of ignored a few things. First of all, if you're a southern slave owner and the census taker comes to you and he's probably your neighbor, it's a census taker, are you going to tell him, I'm not very good at controlling my slaves, I have a bunch of fugitives? No, that number's going to be minimized. And so in our region in particular, it's hard to tell, but this region was sort of a locus for fugitives from Washington, D.C., which had a lot of slaves. <clears throat> there was a network that would send those to William Wright in Adams County. So. Just taking a, a, a pure guess, I would say that among the three counties, you're probably talking about uh, over at least over 100 every year. Now, not something necessarily would happen every day, every few days, like you mentioned, but um, it, it probably was not an, uh, an insignificant number. When someone would, uh, a slave would escape from Washington and head for William Wright's house, yes. how would he know where to go? Ah, 
Well, that's a good question. It's a two-part question. Let me answer that in two parts. First of all, the, the anti-slavery community in Washington, there were a couple of Underground Railroad workers there. It's very dangerous to be an Underground Railroad worker in a southern city. They would actually forward um, slaves forward, so they would hide them in a carriage, let's say. That's typically how that would be done. And it'd be run out of the city, and it would run up to Gettysburg, and then they'd be unloaded. Very dangerous, but a lot of that happened, and William Wright received a lot of slaves that way. Now, there are other slaves who, who just sort of know by reputation. So, for instance, uh, J.W.C. Pennington, when he escapes from the Reisterstown area in, in Maryland, he just takes the road out that he knows will eventually lead north. It takes him to Gettysburg, and actually at the toll gate, he asks the toll taker, do you know where I could get a job? Basically, he's asking her, do you know someone who wants to help African Americans? And she, he's very lucky that she, ha she happens to be a Quaker, and she knows William Wright, and she directs him to William Wright's house. Now, were the, the slave catchers from the South, or for, were they from this area? Well, that's an interesting question. The answer is both, but uh, many of the slave catchers were from either Pennsylvania or sort of northern Maryland, because if you're a slave catcher, you have to know the local geography. So there were slave catchers in Hagerstown. There were slave catchers in uh, Funkstown. There was the Mount Alto uh, uh, furnace uh, in, in the mountains of Franklin County. There were some slave catchers there. So they tended to be in both Pennsylvania and Maryland, but right around the border because you need someone who knows the local roads. Were there Pennsylvanians who were kind of bounty hunters and did this for a living? There is. I have actually a very funny story, an uh, interesting story. It's maybe sad in a way, but there was an individual uh, and, and again, uh, I had to be a little, I ended up deciding I needed to be a little circumspect about this in the book because these were allegations. Yes, they're 150-year-old allegations, but they're only allegations. But there was an allegation I found that there was an individual who was very poor and he worked as a peddler in Cumberland and Franklin counties and uh, he would peddle clocks and he would go, you know how it is when you're a salesman, he would go make the sale and you convince the person they have to buy this, but they'd say, I don't have any money. And he'd say, basically, what else do you have? And they'd say, well, the Cumberland Valley Railroad came through here about 10 years ago. It was supposed to make everybody tons of money. It's really depressed. I've got this stock, these stock certificates from the railroad. So he would take Cumberland Valley Railroad stock in exchange for his clocks, and he amassed a goodly amount of stock this way and eventually the railroad recovered and he became a very wealthy man. But while he was doing the peddling and selling the clocks, he, re he reputedly was also uh, capturing and returning fugitives because that was a very, you know, you might get a hundred dollar reward for a fugitive. That was an, a huge sum of money back then. So he eventually rose to the board of the Pennsylvania Railroad, which was the world's most powerful railroad at the time because he, he essentially owned a large part of Cumberland Valley Railroad. But apparently he started off as a clock peddler and somebody who hunted fugitive slaves. Was there much resistance to the slave catchers? Yes, there was. Uh, a lot of northerners would, or people even along the border would say, it's okay if you don't want to help fugitives, but don't be you know, a man stealer. Don't be a kidnapper. Don't be somebody who's... Uh, one of the newspapers, the Conscience Whig newspaper said, it's the worst kind of man who would coin his soul into dollars by returning fugitive slaves. Uh, so, yes, there was a lot of resistance, but the, the way that the... Uh, and, and if you got caught, you might get prosecuted. Uh, later, up near the Civil War, there's an incident where they, they beat a slave catcher and they drive him out of the area, but that's unusual. But let me tell you, the way the, the, way the, the uh, 
slave forces get around that is they enlist a lot of the law enforcement. So in this area, a lot of the constables uh, also catch fugitive slaves because they see it, I guess, as part of their law enforcement duties, and they get paid for that. And so that becomes controversial. One of them gets killed near Mercersburg by a fugitive slave with a scythe. And there's one in Gettysburg, there's a couple in Gettysburg actually who become pretty controversial because their names are published in the newspaper. One was Constable Robert White and they publish all the circumstances and they say it looks like he's, you know, capturing fugitives. We warn you not to do that basically in the newspaper. Can you tell the story of John McClintock? Yes. John McClintock was a pretty young, very gifted uh, professor at Dickinson College in Carlisle. And uh, some, of his, some of his contemporaries there at the college thought he was essentially the brightest mind in the Methodist church. And he had correspondences with leading thinkers in Europe. And uh, like a lot uh, of young kind of moralistic people who would be in the, the Methodist church, he and a couple of the other professors at Dickinson College opposed slavery uh, uh, openly. And now the president was a little bit more of a fence sitter. But what happened is uh, McClintock ended up writing some essays against slavery, one of which he, he compared slave owners to Judas, basically. He actually said Judas was more godly than slave, slave owners because uh, he only took $30 to sell Jesus instead, you know, instead of all the money slave owners take to sell their slaves. So what happened, this was a national religious journal. And, back, and at that time, all the churches hadn't split yet over slavery. And so this was a publication that would be read in the South as well as the North. And he was saying what Southerners considered inflammatory things. Well, lo and behold, one day there's a party of fugitive slaves and they get captured and they get taken to the courthouse in Carlisle. And somebody runs into McClintock at the post office, actually, mailing his letter, and tells him about it. So he goes across the square to the courthouse and there are the fugitives. And he starts talking to the defense table, the people who are defending the fugitives. And eventually the judge is about to make a decision and remand the fugitives. And McClintock says there's a brand new law that says you can't do that. You have to free these. And he tells them about the 1847 personal liberty law that has just passed. The judge says, I've never heard of that law. And so McClintock says, well, wait right here. I'm going to run to my office. I just got it in the mail. So he runs to his office at Dickinson. He comes back. In the meantime, the slaves have started to escape. They've been carried out of the um, front of the courthouse, and they're going to be put in a carriage to be carried south. And they start to fight and attack the slave owner, sort of like the, the Christiana riot. There's a large crowd of free African Americans from the Carlisle area and otherwise. And it basically becomes a riot. And uh, McClintock kind of gets wrapped up in this. It, it doesn't appear like he was trying to abet it. He was probably trying to stop it. But his name gets wrapped up in it. And in fact, if the slave owner had died immediately, it might have been the Christiana riot of 1847, basically. But he dies a month later, probably from the injuries he'd received. He's still at Carlisle uh, at a hotel, and he dies. But what happens is... Uh, the, the Southerners and the people who don't like McClintock's anti-slavery stands bring him up on trial. And uh, he asked Thaddeus Stevens to represent him. Thaddeus Stevens says, uh, the university isn't going to back you. I, don't, I won't represent you. But Stevens makes the interesting comment. I think you'll get acquitted, but all of the African Americans on trial, he says, the color of their skin will testify against them. They will be convicted. And that's exactly what was happened. happened. McClintock is ultimately acquitted. And a year later, they offer him the presidency of the university. Uh, and he says, no, I think you need somebody a little more wiser and temperate. And he leaves and goes to Europe because uh, all the Southern students at Dickinson had almost withdrawn and the institution was almost ruined by a boycott.
because of that case. You have a chart in here that says the number of articles in the newspapers at the time yeah. that mentioned fugitive slaves, the fugitive slave issue or kidnapping in Adams County newspapers. And you have the compiler, the Sentinel, and the Star. And it kind of peaks around 1851 and then right. starts dropping off. Why is exactly. that? Exactly. That, I put that chart in there because that's part of my argument that uh, the interest in the fugitive slave issue kind of ebbed and flowed in this area, and partly uh, for political reasons and other reasons. And yes, in 1851, I think I counted it up the other night, it's like 208 articles. And yet, if you look at uh, 1857, 1858, you're talking like nine articles. Now, one of the newspapers has dropped out by then, but you can even just see from the trend that they would have only published four or five articles either, probably. What is going on uh, is in 1850, you had a lot of coverage from the Fugitive Slave Law, 1851. You have that, you have some Boston fugitive slave cases, and then you get the Christiana riot. But then, like I said, what happens is, is both sides sort of try out political positions to see if they're going to catch. And the Whigs realize they can't come out strongly for fugitive slaves without splitting their party, and the Democrats aren't. So, so the issue isn't taking so much politically and then nativism rises, and then especially the Kansas issue rises. What happens in Kansas after about 1855 is Kansas wants to come in as a new state. Will it be slave or will it be free? A lot of Pennsylvanians have moved to Kansas. And so all that anti-slavery debate gets translated into basically whether white people will be under a white or a free government and away from fugitive slaves. But it's a stunning, stunningly precipitous fall from 200 to 9 in about six or seven years, and then it comes back because of John Brown, basically. Well, what effect did the Civil War have on fugitive slaves in the area? That's a great question. The, the Civil War, basically, everything, the fugitive slave issue becomes writ large, I basically consider. What happens is, during the war, uh, African Americans can free themselves by fleeing to the Union Army. And early in the war, Benjamin Butler declares them a uh, contraband of war, basically an item with military use, and says if they come to the Union lines, uh, they'll be protected. And so they do in the, by, by the thousands. And, and a lot of them come to South Central Pennsylvania. And just like uh, in the antebellum years when we talked about the Underground Railroad, when they get here, they tend to stay right on the border in places like Greencastle and Mercersburg. Well, why do they do that? Well, they're close to home. If the Union wins the war, they can go home. Maybe they want their wives and children to flee. So they tend to stay right on the border, uh, and they become an issue. It's called the contrabands issue because a lot of the Democrats and others in Pennsylvania don't want large numbers of African Americans migrating into Pennsylvania. And so that creates a whole political issue. And then in 1863, when Robert E. Lee invades, a lot of those uh, contrabands are still there on the border, and some of them get recaptured and carried it back into slavery. Some of the free blacks in Pennsylvania get captured and, and carried into slavery. And used as prisoner exchanges. Well, some, some argue that that was some of the intent. Uh, really, when, when I've looked at the issue, I think that uh, they were trying to restore a labor force to the Shenandoah Valley, which was vital to feeding both Virginia and the Confederate Army. Uh, once they realized they had free blacks, yes, maybe they were holding on to them for prisoner exchanges. Now, you do say here on, on June 3rd, 1861, as troops, this is northern troops, yeah. were about to move south into Virginia, yeah. their commander, General Robert Patterson, warned them that one of their responsibilities would be to suppress servile insurrection. So it wasn't to free the slaves in the areas. Yes, they moved that's exactly to. right. This is early in 1861. 
uh, a more well-known general, General George McClellan, had said the exactly same thing, I think, the day before in uh, West Virginia to his troops. Basically, when the Civil War started, uh, two things. Abraham Lincoln wanted to keep the, the border slave states, Kentucky, Maryland, Missouri, and Delaware in the Union, so he didn't want to appear too anti-slavery. And there was this belief that the southern states had seceded because there was a small group of really large slaveholders. This is like gone with the wind, like 250, 300 slave, slave owners on top of the political system, but the masses of people didn't want to secede. They later found out during the war that wasn't really true. But at the beginning of the war, the intent was just to restore the Union, and so if, if slaves rise up, then let's keep the order, let's suppress these slave rebellions. The thinking on that changed, but it's interesting because it just confirms that at the beginning of the war, it wasn't really a war to end slavery, it was a war to preserve the Union. And when the Republican Party emerged, what, what did it mean to be a Republican and Democrat in, in this part of Pennsylvania? Excellent time? question. The Republican Party emerged nationally. Uh, first, the know-nothings tried to emerge, and they shipwrecked basically because they couldn't board, straddle the, the Mason-Dixon line. They tried to be a Southern Party and a Northern Party, and they couldn't find a slavery position that would satisfy both. Uh, in 1854, you have the Kansas-Nebraska Act, where in an attempt to do another compromise and to create a way for a transcontinental railroad, basically, senators really goober it up, and they open up, they, they invalidate the Missouri Compromise in 1820, which had said everything under this line is slave and everything's free. They get away with it. They, they get rid of that, and it creates a huge... Uh, controversy because people in the North say, well, now New York State could become a slave state. And so this brings Abraham Lincoln, who had more or less sort of gone into semi-retirement as the Whigs faded. It brings him back into politics. And in late 1854, you see uh, Republican parties starting to be started all over the North. And so the Republican Party will tell you that it is, it is not an anti-slavery party, but it opposes the further uh, expansion of slavery. Well, Southerners at this time, who are starting to feel very beleaguered by anti-slavery, they feel if the slavery can't expand to California and maybe to Latin America and Cuba, then it will eventually die off. They feel slavery needs to keep expanding. So these are two diametrically and, and unresolvable issues. So the, the Republicans wanted to restrict slavery, and Southerners wanted more guarantees for slavery than any Northerner was going to be willing to give. Well, in the 1860 election, when Abraham Lincoln was elected, how did Pennsylvania go? Pennsylvania went for Lincoln, and that was the key. But it was very, uh, uh, for a while, it wasn't clear that that was going to happen. What the Republicans, the Republicans were very politically savvy. And what they, during the 1850s, what they essentially did is they, they put together a coalition of anti-slavery people, old Whig people, and um, uh, the, the old nativist people. And they needed to keep this uh, coalition together to win in 1860. So they actually downplayed slavery just a little from what they did in 1856. They talked a lot more about the tariff because they wanted to get manufacturing support across the North. And the Democrat Party had split over slavery because Stephen Douglas, who created the Kansas-Nebraska Act, wasn't perceived as firm enough a Northern defender for slavery because of things he'd said in the Lincoln-Douglas debate in 1858. So as a result, the Northern Democrats nominated Douglas, the Southern Democrats nominated Breckinridge, and then a third Democrat, John Bell from Virginia, tries to form a third kind of centrist party. It's interesting that in South Central Pennsylvania, newspapers actually came out for Breckinridge, the most radical Southern uh, pro-slavery candidate. Because of the split, 
uh, there really was no way that uh, as long as the Republicans could keep their coalition together and not be too controversial, which is why they nominated Lincoln, who was perceived as a moderate, and they were able to carry the election. How did Pennsylvania go in the 1864 election? Lincoln in the middle of the war, Lincoln against McClellan. Lincoln against McClellan. That was also a key election. And uh, for the longest time, even in August, Lincoln had penned things and told people that he didn't think he was going to be reelected. But a couple things happened. First of all, uh, Atlanta is captured when it looked like that was going to be a very long siege. And then Sheridan goes riding up and down the Shenandoah Valley and, and destroys the Shenandoah Valley. So it's clear the war is starting to end. Uh, that stuff was so political that the Democratic papers in, in Adams County didn't even cover it. They held the news for like a month and a half until the election was over, and then they published a real small item. Oh, by the way, this happened in the Valley, and, this, and Atlanta fell, because they, they knew it was going to hurt their prospects. Uh, Lincoln carried Pennsylvania, and he carried the North, and he was reelected, but uh, for a great deal of that period of time, he and a lot of other Republicans thought that he wasn't going to be reelected. The Republicans actually even tried, some of them tried to nominate a different candidate. How did Lincoln do in, in Adams, uh, Cumberland, and Franklin counties in 1864 re-election? Um, if my memory is correct, I'm pretty sure that Lincoln didn't carry the south-central Pennsylvania counties. During the Civil War, you see a trend where uh, even though the state is trending more Republican, the three counties are starting to trend more Democrat. Uh, what number of book is this for you? That's my first book. It is. Yeah. What was the experience like? Uh, it took a lot longer than I thought, uh, but it's a great experience. Writing a book like that is a great experience. I did it part because I knew there were a lot of local researchers working on the Underground Railroad, and I wanted to give them sort of a framework and a context, and I know they'll improve parts of it. But I, I love going to the archives. I'm sort of an archives rat, and so I love that part. The writing is harder, but uh, I enjoyed it immensely. you have another book in mind? Oh, I have a few different ideas. Uh, I want to do a little bit more on uh, what I talk about in the Gettysburg campaign there with the capture of African Americans. I want to see if I can put a whole book together on that. And I've got uh, other areas of history that I'm interested in, too. We are out of time. We've been speaking with David G. Smith. He is the author of this book, On the Edge of Freedom, the Fugitive Slave Issue in South Central Pennsylvania. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Brian. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.